Good morning, everybody. Um, I want to thank you for that welcome, and I want to thank you for your patience with me. I know some folks have been asking about me, and I appreciate that. Um, I am fine, a little fuzzier maybe, <laughs> but I have uh, been following my doctor's recommendations to be safe, but be that as it may, I am thrilled to be here. Isn't this great? Cloud cover, not too hot. So appreciate that very much. Also, I would say keep Rick in your prayers, but I've seen the pictures of where he is right now in this mountain cabin in Georgia, and I think his prayers have been answered. Um, they're, they're having a great time on vacation, so uh, I am hopeful that uh, they continue to enjoy some well-deserved rest and relaxation and family time and that um, they'll come back to us refreshed and ready to go. So before I begin, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Precious Heavenly Father, we thank you for a beautiful day. We thank you for uh, a comfortable weather situation, Lord, and knowing Virginia's summers can sometimes be pretty hot and muggy, but you've given us a good day today, Lord, and I'm grateful for that. Lord, I would pray that everything that I speak today would be strictly from your word that is not be me saying things, Lord, but you speaking through me. Uh, Lord, this uh, is a difficult message in some spots, and it's difficult times, Lord. But I pray that you would guide us through them, that you would give us the humility and grace to do the things you would have us do. And Lord, ultimately, everything we do is to give you glory. That's our desire, and we just pray that you would uh, infuse that into our hearts through the presence of of the Holy Spirit within us. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, it's pretty clear that 2020 is probably a year for the record books. Um, I don't know about anyone else, but I don't think I could have imagined the kind of situation that we find ourselves in right now. Um, just the combination of events, and it seems like every time you pick up the newspaper or watch the news, there's something new. I saw the, now everybody's talking about dust from the Sahara, which by the way, I'm told happens all the time. This is just a little bit bigger than normal. And if anything, it's going to suppress hurricanes. So let's praise God for that. Okay. But in the midst of all these times, we've been dealing with some questions and there's an old saying that says crises do not create character, but they reveal it. And I think it's important to note that because right now what's being revealed about us, about our nation, sometimes it's unpleasant. Sometimes it's something that we don't want to face, but we do need to hear. And so while I will be talking about a lot of things in this message about what we can do to be salt and light as we are called to be, um, I don't want you to take anything that you hear and presume that it is designed to condemn or create guilt. I just want to be as honest as I can and show you where scripture tells us we should go. And in doing so, put us in a position of obedience to take the actions that we need to take. So I want to give you, first of all, what I call our anchor verse. And this is the verse that I want us to focus on. And it's in Micah. It's in the book of Micah. If you could turn to that, that's in the Old Testament, Micah chapter 6, Micah chapter 6. 
Micah chapter 6, reading verse 8. He has shown you, O mortal, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. Some translations say act justly. They say to do justice. And that's the portion of that verse that I want to focus on this morning. You know, I like my definitions from Oxford English Dictionary. So I went to look up what the Oxford English Dictionary has to say about the word act. And it gives three definitions that are relevant in this context. It says to take action, to do something, to behave in the way specified, to fulfill the function or serve the purpose of. And as I read that, I was reminded of one of the more practical books in the New Testament, uh, the book of James. Jesus' brother wrote a, a book that's extremely direct and very practical. I call it Jesus in Blue Jeans. And it talks about the things that we need to do to show that our faith has manifested itself in tangible, impactful ways. So in the first chapter of James, verse 22 through 25, it reads, do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says is like someone who looks at his face in a mirror and after looking at himself goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. But whoever looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues in it, not forgetting what they have heard, but doing it, they will be blessed in what they do. Later on in the same book, James writes in James 14, 17, 417, if anyone then knows the good they ought to do, and doesn't do it, it is sin for them. So clearly, when the Bible talks about action, we're not supposed to just read the word. We're not supposed to internalize the word. We're supposed to act on what the word tells us. And so when we look at the society we, where we are today, the question is, what is our arena for action? Where are we to act? And this is an important question because there are differences even within the body of believers as to where we should act. There are those who believe that we should confine our actions to the physical walls of our sanctuary or to our spiritual practices. They say that as long as we pray, preach the gospel, and win hearts to Jesus, all will be well. And I want to make sure you understand, I am not by any means diminishing those practices. Those are disciplines of the faith that we all should adhere to. But this is not an either-or proposition. It's a both-and. And I want to emphasize that. So Matthew 6.10. Matthew 6.10. That's part of the Lord's Prayer. And the portion of it I'm focusing on says, Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. So you'll note that he doesn't confine our heavenly actions to heaven. We are supposed to do what we can by his guidance in the word to create as much as we can a heaven on earth. Now we know that that's not going to happen until Jesus returns. But that does not absolve us of the responsibility to do everything we can to represent heavenly values and 
and heavenly climate to the extent that we can influence it. Proverbs, third chapter, 27 through 29 says, Do not withhold good from those to whom it is due when it is in your power to act. Do not say to your neighbor, come back tomorrow and I'll give it to you when you already have it with you. Do not plot harm against your neighbor who lives trustfully near you. Deuteronomy tells us, for the poor will never cease to be in the land. Therefore, I command you saying, you shall freely open your hand to your brother, to your needy and the poor in your land. I bring that one up because a lot of people, when they say the poor will always be with you, they somehow believe that absolves them from doing anything about it. But that's not the context of the verse. If you go back to the original statement in Deuteronomy, it says, you will open your hand to your brother, to your needy and poor in your land. You will act, despite the fact that there will always be poor among you. The Apostle John wrote in 1 John, but if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. And then we go back to my friend James, who says, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. And I know that no one here believes that their faith is dead. So it is critical for us when we talk about action that we focus on not just our spiritual practices, not just the things we do within the walls of our churches. And by our churches, I'm talking about the edifices, not the church, which is what you and I represent. But we should also be out in the world acting to affect change in the name of Jesus Christ. So let me put a hard truth out there to you. Let's say that we do believe that all we need to do is pray, worship God, preach the gospel, win hearts to Jesus. We don't get involved. It's all about how we do our spiritual practices, how we interact with people individually. If all we need to be doing is heart change to affect change in the world, then we should stop marching for life. We should pull back from the abortion clinics where we have people trying to minister to people going in. We should stop sending money to groups that push legislation or argue in court for our beliefs. And we should stop supporting politicians who may reflect our interests but don't always reflect our ideals. So my question is this. We have no problem marching into the arena for many favored issues. Why do we have a struggle with anti-racism. Why is that of all of the issues that confront our culture, why is that one so difficult for us to engage in? Well, I'm going to put some things out there and you may or may not see yourself or hear yourself in these things. And I'm going to tell you, I am going to point those fingers at me because for the first 50 plus years of my life, I lived in a bubble about the issue of race. God had favored me throughout my life to where the things I experienced when it came to race were mercifully brief. 
were handled very quickly and had little or no impact on my life. But what I learned through time is that my life experience is not incontrovertible truth. I can't tell anyone who has been through a difficult time in their lives that somehow their experience is irrelevant, is untrue, doesn't matter. What does that make us? How empathetic are we when we can look at a brother and sister in Christ and say, no, that didn't happen because it didn't happen to me? How self-centered can we be? So why is it we have difficulty with this issue? Well, some people think racism doesn't exist. Now, I would hope that anyone who follows Christ would not fall into that category because racism is, at its core, sin. And we all know that sin exists and will exist until Jesus returns. So my hope is that there isn't a Christian out there who believes that racism doesn't exist. Racism isn't something I've personally witnessed or experienced. And again, I ask you, what is the likelihood for many of us here today that we would have experienced it in the first place? Racism isn't an issue for me because I treat my black friends and acquaintances well. And I commend you for doing that. Many of us say that racism doesn't exist because of how we feel individually or how we act individually. But that doesn't represent the collective view of a nation or a world. It is highly conceivable that you can be very, very Christianly in terms of how you interact with one person, but be completely unaware of how the system perpetuates racism. It's not nearly the problem it used to be. Amen. I agree with that. You just have to read history and look at what our fathers and grandfathers, our mothers and grandmothers had to endure to know that things have gotten better. They're not what they used to be, but they're not yet where they could be. That's what I want us to acknowledge. Racism is an individual and not a systemic issue. That one's important. I will tell you, I believe the same thing. I believe that racism was a matter of certain individuals, rogues, if you will, that were engaged in these horrible acts and that the system as a whole was not responsible for racist outcomes. Now, I want you to be clear here. Racism is a deliberate thing on the part of individuals. But a system doesn't have feelings. It doesn't have uh, a way of having animus toward a group or a group of people. But systems can be designed such a way that the outcome is unequal. And that's the thing, when we talk about something being systemic, it's that it has been designed such that the end results do not come to where we want them to be as a society that prizes equal opportunity and liberty and justice for all. So where we see outcomes that are not favorable to one group over another, that should immediately prick our hearts and tell us, what can we do to fix that? It isn't that the individuals within the system are inherently racist. It isn't that we are condoning racism individually. It's just that we see that there's something wrong and we want to fix it. It's that simple. It's not a matter of anyone having to feel guilty 
or weighed down by anything. It's just a matter of seeing suffering, seeing injustice, seeing something that doesn't look right, and doing what we can to set it to rights. This one I've heard a lot on social media. And again, I would hope that any person who is a Christian does not get wrapped up in this. Racism is a fabrication of the media, the left, the enemies of the state, etc., etc. That to me is idolatry because you're basically taking something, this fear of the other, these boogeymen, whoever they are, and you're putting that at the top of your consideration. Now, is it possible that there are people out there that want to exploit our discord, our disharmony, our disunion? Absolutely. Because there is evil in the world. And there are people who want to do whatever they can to create chaos and to create discord. Yes, there are people out there. But that does not excuse us from the, po- the problem that we are doing, essentially giving them the rope to hang ourselves. Are you with me on that? The idea that somehow because somebody is trying to exploit our problems doesn't absolve us from the responsibility to deal with the problem. Because if we do that, then our enemies don't have anything to use against us. So it goes back to the core, dealing with the problem. Racism is a chronic condition that subsides and flares constantly but has never been fully diagnosed and therefore not properly treated. We have 493 years of history when we're looking at the impact of slavery, institutionalized discrimination, and then today's mass incarceration laws. 493 years of history. And if we believe that we have dealt with that, then we're deluding ourselves. And by the way, for those of you doing the math, 1619 is usually the year where we start, but I actually start in 1526. That's when the first slaves actually landed on American soil, somewhere between Georgia and South Carolina. It was a group of Spanish explorers who tried to establish a settlement there. The settlement failed. The explorers mutinied. The slaves revolted was the first slave revolt recorded in North America. And they ran into the nearby woods to assimilate with the native tribes. So it goes back a little bit longer than some of us realize. That's a long history, and it's not going to be solved overnight. Finally, racism is something we are afraid to confront because what it exposed might be too hard for us to see. Our ignorance and blindness could be exposed, and I raise my hand on that. Our idols could be exposed, what it is that really matters to us. Our self-centeredness, our desire to only look at our experiences and judge everything from that perspective. Our self-centeredness could be exposed. Our lack of empathy, rejoicing with those who rejoice, weeping with those who weep, our lack of empathy could be exposed. The impotence of our faith could be exposed. One of the saddest things I see in the black community today is that the young people have lost confidence in the black church. And it's not because the black church does not believe 
injustice. It isn't that the black church isn't striving to try and deal with these issues. Get this. They have lost confidence in the black church because of their inability to bring their white brothers and sisters in Christ to the table with them. In other words, they're telling us that Jesus Christ is the unifying force, but they're not seeing it in the interactions with their white Christian brothers and sisters. So young black people are saying, well, if they can't bring white Christians to the table of grace to help us, then why do I need to interact with them? The black church used to be the center of community life at times when the black community was going through its worst days under Jim Crow. The church was not only a community center, it was a center for activism, it was a center for hope, it was a center for change. And now, because of their inability to connect with their white brothers and sisters who also call themselves Christians, young people see them as irrelevant. And that saddens me. Because it means that we collectively have a responsibility to correct that because we are the ones that need to reach out to them and show them that we are one with them because we all worship the same Lord and Savior. So, as we look at that, I want to share the words with you from Martin Luther King Jr. Because a lot of people say that this is a hard issue. And this is not an old argument. It's been made before. And Martin Luther King's response was, it may be true that the law cannot change the heart, but it can restrain the heartless. It may be true that the law cannot make a man love me, but it can keep him from lynching me. And I think that is pretty important also. Very wise words. We may not be able to change hearts that's something that happens one-on-one. -on -one. We always talk about change happens within three feet or less. But we can, by our actions, collective actions, show the world what Jesus looks like. And don't, don't doubt that some hearts out there can be changed when they see the church as a body moving as one toward justice and righteousness. So I will tell you I've been gratified by the fact that so many of you have sent me messages, private messages, and others asking, what can I do? You don't want to just sit on the sidelines. You don't want to be complicit. You want to do something. And I I'm, I'm really am gratified by that because it speaks to your empathy. It speaks to your heart. So I want to help with that. I want to give you some ideas to take away. The first thing I would tell you if you want to help, listen. Then listen some more and listen again before you speak. One of the uh, values here at Mosaic Church is also one of the seven habits of highly effective people. Seek first to understand, then to be understood. The key to that is that it's other-centered. It's putting the other person first, and then we move forward to expressing ourselves. We earn the right to be heard before we speak. So, once again, James, my dear brothers and sisters, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry because human anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. In the book of Proverbs, it says, if one gives an answer before he hears, 
It is his folly and shame. And finally, also in Proverbs, a fool takes no pleasure in understanding, but only in expressing his opinion. Every one of us, myself included, is guilty as we hear someone speak of formulating our answers. And can you formulate an answer to something if you're not listening? So it's key for us to learn and to practice active listening, to clear our minds and just hear what is being said. And there are certainly lots of ways in which we can learn that discipline. But the first thing I think we need to do is listen. The second thing we need to do is not deflect. One of the things I see when it comes to this issue is a lot of deflection. But what about this? But what about that? Now, deflection is simply a way to avoid the question. If someone brings something to you, you say, well, what about this? And guess who used to do that a lot back in the day? Most of you know I served in the Air Force as an intelligence officer. And it was my job to try and decipher what was truth and what was a lie when it came to the intelligence we received from our adversaries. And the Soviet Union, in particular, was very adept at something that Garry Kasparov, a Russian activist, called whataboutism. Anytime someone would point out to them the horrors of the gulags or the human rights atrocities and abuses that took place in the Soviet Union, the Russian propaganda machine would say, well, what about American slavery? What about the way they treat Native Americans? What about this? What about that? It was a time-honored tactic, and it was designed to deflect attention away from them and what they were doing to what someone else is doing. Well, thank God Scripture has something to say about deflection, too. 21st chapter of John, and many of you remember this story. After Jesus had risen from the dead, he met his disciples in Galilee. Remember the story of them going out to fish they hadn't caught anything all night, and the stranger on the shore said to throw out your net. And they caught so many fish, they didn't know what to do with them, and they realized that it was Jesus on the shore. So they go to him and have breakfast with him, and that's when he challenges Peter, asking if Peter loves him. Challenged him three times, and then feed my sheep. Well, this was part of the conversation as well. Peter was looking around at the other apostles and he made a comment about one of them. When Peter saw him, he asked, Lord, what about him? Jesus answered, if I want him to remain until I return, what is that to you? You follow me. In other words, don't worry about what he's doing or not doing. Your responsibility is to stay fixed on me and to do as I command. We also have the first story in the Bible the first example of deflection. And guys, you're not going to like this. <laughs> in the Garden of Eden, who was it who was given the instruction to not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? It was Adam. So when Eve was tempted by the serpent and she took of the fruit and ate it, where was Adam? He was right there. And what did he do? He did nothing. He took the fruit from her and ate it. He said nothing. So, 
when God comes into the garden and he says, where are you? And they said, we hid because we were naked and afraid. And he said, who told you you were naked? And he realized what he had done. And he said, what have you done? And what did Adam say? In Genesis 3.12, the man said, the woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. That is deflection at its best (laughs) or its worst, depending on your perspective. Don't be like Adam. Don't try to pass off things. Take responsibility and accountability and act to do something about it. So after listening, make sure that you're not putting deflections out there. That's a very insidious way of not facing responsibility for what's going on. The next thing you can do, define your sphere of influence. Define your sphere of influence. Who do you know? Who are your friends? What circles do you find yourself in? What are your communities of interest? Who do you know that listens to you? That takes your opinions and ponders them? That's your circle of influence. And it's very important for us to define what that is. Because nobody's asking you to go out and change the world. Just change the part of the world that you belong to. In Acts 17, 26, it explains from one man, he made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth, and he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. So you are not here by accident. You are not in this time by accident. God has a purpose for every one of us being where we are. And that's because he wants us to be influencers. He wants us to be people who have an impact where we are and when we are. Jeremiah 29, 5 through 7. By way of context, the Israelites were being dragged into exile, into Babylon. And you would think that while they're in exile, they could be grumbling, they could be plotting an overthrow, escape, whatever it is that they might do. But God's direction to them was quite different from what they anticipated. He said, build houses and settle down. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number there. Do not decrease. Also, seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. What the Lord is telling us is that where we are right now is not a place that we should condemn or shame or curse. We should be praying for the prosperity of where we are, the peace of where we are. We should be living our lives and having influence where we are. Because really, if you think about it, we are in exile, are we not? This is not our home, as Rick has often told us. But while we are here, we are not to stand still. We are not to grumble and complain and wait for the Lord to come and take us. Because if that was all it is to being saved, he could take all of us right now. He has us here for a reason. He has us here for a purpose. So know what your sphere of influence is and do what you can to have influence within it. 
Rick's talked about this one a couple of weeks ago, defining your gifts and abilities. What are you good at? What comes naturally to you? And that's easy to figure out because something that looks hard to other people but comes naturally to you is probably what you're good at. I'll give you an example from one of my favorite sports, football. How many people here have heard of Peyton Manning? Okay. Peyton Manning's considered one of the great quarterbacks in NFL history. And he is known for being just a master on the field, calling plays at the line, changing things. He mastered his craft. But he would be the first to tell you that he'd be a horrible coach. And the reason is because being a quarterback came so naturally to him that he doesn't know how to teach it. So guess what? I think that's what he's good at. And he's taken what he's good at and he uses his platform, doesn't he? Whatever you do, whatever you're good at, you can use that to bring God glory. Are you a master baker? Then bake to the glory of God. Are you a great teacher? Then teach to the glory of God. Are you a great homemaker? Then be a homemaker to the glory of God. Are you great at hospitality? Do hospitality to the glory of God. In everything you're good at, everything you do, think about what it is that you can do to bring God glory. Ephesians 2.10 tells us that we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. He designed you specifically for the task that he has for you. And the way you find out what those are is knowing what it is you're good at. Good at. Know yourself. Rick talked about the spiritual gifts. It's very important for us to acknowledge our spiritual gifts, and that's unique to us as Christians. Romans says we have different gifts according to the grace given to each of us. If your gift is prophesying, then prophesy in accordance with your faith. If it's serving, then serve. If it's teaching, then teach. If it's to encourage, then give encouragement. If it is giving, then give generously. If it is to lead, do it diligently. If it's to show mercy, do it cheerfully. So I encourage you to take those times of introspection to really know what it is you're good at. I remember a story from uh, a writer about a student, a Liberty graduate, coincidentally enough, who was struggling with what it is they needed to do when they got out into the world. Now, they were very talented in the area of business. This is a young person that knew how to put a business together, knew how to raise money, was very adept at raising money and building a business. And so he went to his pastor and said, Pastor, I want to serve the Lord, but I don't know what my purpose is. I don't know what his plan is for my life. He said, I'd love to be able to get to a point where I can build my business and then I can have money to donate to missions. What should I do? The pastor looked at him and said, I think you should build business, raise money, and give money to missions. (laughs) It's amazing to me how much we know about ourselves Yet we don't make the connection that those are things we can do for the glory of God. So find out what it is that you do well. Take a spiritual gifts inventory to know what your spiritual gifts are. The combination of how God made you and the gifts he gave you through the Holy Spirit will make you highly effective in building the kingdom and bringing equal justice and liberty to all. Be a peacemaker, not a peacekeeper. How many of you know the difference? 
Thank you. <laughs> Don't avoid conflict in the name of keeping the peace. Don't avoid conflict in the name of keeping the peace. Now, all of us do that in one way or another. It's important for us to realize, though, that there comes a time where we have to face conflict because we're in a world where the way we see things through God's eyes and the way the world is are different. Right away, we are, we are born as, Christi as Christians, we come into conflict. We are born again into conflict. So we don't avoid it, but we run to it. But we do so with boldness and gentleness. You can do the two together. Ephesians talks again about how we are made to do what God has planned us to do. We are not made to sit on the sidelines. We have to engage. Isaiah, some of you may recognize this verse because this is how Jesus began his ministry in the synagogue in Nazareth. The spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives, to release from darkness the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn. Later on in that same chapter, he says, For I, the Lord, love justice. I hate robbery and wrongdoing. In my faithfulness, I will reward my people and make an everlasting covenant with them. Their descendants will be known among the nations and their offspring among the peoples. All who see them will acknowledge that they are a people the Lord has blessed. Now, what happened when Jesus declared in the synagogue that the year of the Lord's favor was speaking about him. You think there was a little conflict there? They tried to stone him, but it wasn't his time, and he disappeared into the crowd. But if you look at how Jesus confronted the culture of his day, he didn't avoid conflict. He spoke boldly, but he spoke with authority he spoke with respect. And you'll note that the people he spoke most gently to were the people who were suffering. He didn't have a lot of patience with people in authority, with people in power. But he spoke with great gentleness. Think about this. This is the Lord manifest in humanity. This is God poured into man. Yet he had a deep and abiding compassion for the least of us even as he was excoriating those in power. So he was a peacemaker. He went into areas of conflict and he made peace. And that's what we're called to do. Don't be a peacekeeper. Don't be an appeaser. Don't walk away because it's easier to keep the quiet than it is to make a little noise on behalf of the kingdom. I also think it's important for us to understand that we're going to encounter challenges. Don't let the few dissuade you from what it is you have to do. I tell you that it's hard. I, I know. Nothing hurts more than being out there and then having people come at you, have people attack you. I'm fortunate enough to have friends across every possible spectrum you can imagine. 
And I'll tell you, some of my friends receive the words that I have a lot more positively than others. I have been called names by others who didn't agree with me. And even though I tried to engage them with all of the winsomeness I could muster, I still lost them. I've had people say that I'm a pawn. I've had people say that I was being duped by Satan. (laughs) But that should not dissuade me or you or anyone else from doing what is right. Hebrews 12.2 tells us to fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. Jesus gave his disciples great guidance as they were going out into the world because he knew there were households they would encounter that wouldn't receive them. And he said, as you enter the home, give it your greeting. If the home is deserving, let your peace rest on it. If it is not, let your peace return to you. If anyone will not welcome you or listen to your words, leave that home or town and shake the dust off your feet. It's important for us to try and engage as many people as we can, including people that may not agree with us, but don't waste your time on people who will not change. You can't do anything about it. Only God can do that. There are a lot of other people out there who want to hear what you have to say, who want to follow the things that you put out there. So don't let the few dissuade you. Press on toward the goal that God has put in front of you. And it's very important for us to understand that. You've heard the verse about pearls before swine. It's a harsh one. Believe me, it is. But it's important for us to remember that if we have something of value and we're banging our heads against a wall, then that value is not being realized. So don't let the few dissuade you. Finally, determine what you put first. Determine what you put first. As I've often said to people, what is the central organizing principle around which you order your life? And most of us would say it's Jesus Christ because we're Christians and because we recognize what he's done for us. But what we say and what we do can sometimes come into conflict. Matthew 6, 21 says, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Where do you invest most of your time? Your money. What gets you agitated, energized? What is it that if somebody says something about it, it immediately grabs you? That's probably what you have at the top of your priority list. A lot of us don't realize it, but we idolize good things, but not the best thing. Romans 1.25 says they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served created things rather than the creator who is forever praised. Amen. And in Luke, Jesus told people, whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. In other words, if you are not fully dedicated to Jesus Christ, if he is not at the very top of your list of priorities, then you cannot serve him in the way that we are intended to serve him. Matthew 6, says, Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. And that's the thing I want people to realize. There are a lot of good things out there that we give our time, talent, and treasure to. 
No doubt about that. But if you put Christ first, he will give you all those other good things. We don't realize that. That we aren't somehow saying that these good things are without meaning. But if we put Christ first, all else will be added. All else will be added. I've always believed, particularly when it comes to the issue we're facing today, if we put Christ first, racial reconciliation is not only achievable, but inevitable. I have no doubt in my mind about that. Because it is Christ that can bring black and white believers together under one roof. So, I hope that the harshness of some of the things I said in the beginning led to some practical consideration of how we should act and how we can act. These uh, presentation slides are going to be available to you, but also I'm going to provide some resources that might be able to help as well. Some of you will find additional information that this message was based on in a blog article I wrote for No Walls called How Should We Then Live in 2020? So I would encourage you to read it. It will repeat a lot of the things I've talked about, but it'll offer other amplifying information as well. The No Walls Ministry has put out a checklist called Sowing Unity. Sowing Unity. You know, we reap what we sow. We want to plant the seeds and sow unity. So it actually gives you a step-by-step list of things to think about when you want to try and engage on this issue. If you're sitting there wondering, how do I start? This checklist gives you some ideas, and it'll take you through a process. We also did a scriptural study of the Good Samaritan, the parable of the Good Samaritan, and we showed by verse by verse how it relates to some of the issues we're dealing with today. I promise you, if you read it, you'll see that story, which we've all heard and are familiar with. You'll see it in a new light. And finally, as I said before, these, these slides will be available on the Mosaic website. We don't want to sit up here and tell you what you should do. We want to give you guidelines. We, what we want to equip you to. What you do from here going forward is up to you. I've always believed that the local church is the hope of the world. And so when I see 2020 and all the things that are happening right now, and the fact that it's bringing out in people such fear and anger and strife, I see the antidote right here in front of me. Each and every one of you can be the antidote to 2020. And I would just encourage you to take some time this week to think about how you can be that person, and then go out and do it. Amen? Let's pray. Father, I thank you. I thank you for these beautiful souls that took their time to be here. I thank you for those that are watching us on the live stream. Lord, I pray that you have used the words that I've put out there, Lord, imperfect as they are, and you have made good of them. You have touched a heart. You have changed a mind. Lord, you have the power to do that. I don't. So I pray that whatever I've done, Lord, that I haven't been a stumbling block, but that I have created opportunities for you 
to move forward in their lives, to move forward in our nation and in our world. Bless these dear saints, Lord, as they go out into the world and they try to do the things that you would have them do. Protect them, guard their hearts, Lord. Just help them to conserve their strength. Help them to know where they can use their time and talents best. And in all things, Lord, I ask that you would encourage them and build them up as they follow your will. I pray this in Jesus' name. And all of God's people said, Amen. Please don't forget our offering, wherever the trash can is, right over there. Help to keep us, keep the doors open. We will be here at the drive-in church again next week. Uh, we will be talking about what happens after that. But for next week, we will see you here again. We thank you. We love you. Have a wonderful week.